So we're going to continue in the book of John, the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible with you, open up to, to John chapter 19 and also uh, Hebrews chapter 10, those two places. So we're going to be looking at uh, both of those this morning. But John chapter 19, so over the past few weeks we've been looking at the trial, the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And last week we looked at the seven statements that he made from the cross and the importance of, of each one of those uh, famous last words, if you will. Um, it was something that kind of caught my attention. What were or what have been some of the famous last words that we have from, from history? Uh, evidently, there was a guy by the name of Jim Harkins, and his uh, famous last words was, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming in terror like his passengers. There was an inscription on a tombstone that said, I told you I was sick. <laughs> They're going to get better, I promise. <laughs> Another guy said, whenever I start getting sad about where I am in my life, I think about the last words of my favorite uncle who said, A truck! <laughs> Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, his famous last words were, give everything to... That's all he said. Uh, famous last words of Socrates. It's said that he said, I drank what? I had really envisioned that these were going to go over a whole lot better. Uh, General Sedgwick, who was killed at the Spotsylvania Battle of 1864 when he was looking over the parapet at the enemy lines, said, we are certainly far enough away, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... That was his famous last words. Another tombstone said, here lies an atheist all dressed up and nowhere to go. Uh, and lastly, you can applaud if you want, here lies Lester Moore, four shots from a forty-four. No less, no more. No less. His name was Lester Moore. No less. So, chapter 19, the Gospel of John. Man, those didn't, those didn't work at all. <laughs> Last week in chapter 9, we looked at this, the scene at the cross. What, what Jesus went through, what Jesus said, these seven statements from the cross what they meant. And he said, it is finished. When Jesus, uh, God, when he finishes something, we know, we talked about it last week, it's done, it's, it's complete. Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. All that was necessary to be accomplished had been accomplished. It was a finished work on the cross. The terms of the contract had been fulfilled. Tetelestai, that word we talked about. The debt was paid in full. God required a one-time final sacrifice for all, and it was done. Period. Flip over, if you, if you have your finger there, into Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read a, a por portion of Scripture from there to this morning. Hold your place in John chapter 19. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 1. For the law, 
having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, said the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So we talked about last week that very thing, that in the Old Testament... There were many sacrifices that were required for the sins of the people, but they had, it was a continual thing, wasn't it? Sacrifices had to be made over and over and over again to cover the sins of the people. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, it was the final one-time sacrifice for all sins, past, present, and future, for all of us, for all of mankind, for all of the world over all time. It was done. It was finished. It was complete. That's why Jesus said that. That was the mission that the Father had put him on. God had placed him here so that he could carry out that ministry to die on the cross for the sins of the people. And we know that, we'll look at it in a couple weeks on Resurrection Sunday, that he doesn't stay in the tomb, does he? He's raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise God. But as we move through these scriptures... Uh, in, in John chapter 19, back to that, we're going to see some things that should speak to us. Um, this time that Jesus has taken down off the cross and he's placed in the tomb. He's already died. He's already given up his spirit. He said it is finished, so he's completed that work. But there's a little scene in here between the cross and the tomb that, that's of, uh, of note for us. It's, it's documented for us, not just for Knowledge, not just for history, but because there's application there for us as well. So 
we see what was written in Hebrews chapter 10. That that's what God's divine plan was. That this one perfect sacrifice would, would be made and that final one-time sacrifice would be Jesus Christ, His only Son. This new covenant in Jesus Christ is far superior to the old covenant in that sacrifices are required again and again and again. The one-time sacrifice for all. As we saw in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, as we just read, verse 14, For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has perfected us forever because of the work of salvation is complete. We, in and of ourselves, are not perfect, are we? How many, anybody in here perfect? Mike, you are? Okay, we'll talk after the service. <laughs> we know we're not perfect. Where most of us were a mistake or a sin looking for a place to happen most of the time, aren't we? But by recognizing we are sinners and by accepting His one-time sacrifice on the cross as He paid the price for our sin, we are saved. That work is done. He died on the cross for us because He loved us that much. You may have heard it before. How much does Jesus loved us, love us? And He stretched out His arm and said, this much, right? He died on the cross for each one of us. But His love for us also means He will continue to work in us to sanctify us. Philippians 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Wives, how many of you is that your life verse for your husband? <laughs> That's the way I'm going. I'm not going to go the other direction with that. <laughs> Wives, <laughs> so they're just praying for that completed work that's going to be done. They're resting on that, right? As we all are, we know that there's still work to be done. His love for us, His sacrifice for us, made it possible for us to have salvation from our sin. In Him, because He paid the price. He was the initiator. He began the work but there's still a lifetime of sanctification that needs to take place. We've mentioned this before. Salvation is an event. Sanctification is a process, isn't it? There's a point in time in our lives, those of us that have accepted the Lord, where we know that we gave our lives over to Him. We know that He came in to our lives to save us from our sin. And from that point on, from that event, that event of salvation, sanctification takes place. We like sanctification, don't we? We do because we know it's molding us more and more in the image of Christ. It's drawing us closer to God. And of course, it's never painful, right? <laughs> sanctification hurts sometimes, doesn't it? It's hard. But we've talked about this before, the, the, the whip factor, W-I-P, whip, works in process. That's what we are, right? We could all have a, a t-shirt that says that, work in process, as we do an honest assessment of ourselves, we know that to be true. There's still work to be done, isn't there? We should be like David as he prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there is any wicked or sinful way in me. Now I guarantee you, if you pray that prayer, God will reveal something. Maybe many things <laughs> over time. But it's a prayer that we pray to God because we don't want to stay where we are. We want Him to continue to work 
in us and through us to continue that sanctifying work in us. Well, back to our text today, starting with verse 31 in John chapter 19. We see, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So given that the next day was to be Passover, the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses. Why? Why was that a big deal? Well, from their standpoint, that would just distract from Passover, wouldn't it? They just didn't want them hanging there during Passover. It would be a, be a distraction. It's almost like they were saying, well, let's not have the very one who fulfilled the Passover be a distraction on Passover. We know that Passover was instituted in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were still in Egypt. God was going to deliver them out and the angel of death was coming through and in order for the, their firstborn not to be killed, they had to paint blood on the doorpost, didn't they? So the blood covering over the doorpost accounted for sin passing over. That's why they call it Passover, simply put. So the blood on the, on the doorpost, we have that same picture with the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, don't we? So the Jews asked for their legs to be broken to speed up the death process. Now we talked about this last week, just to some degree, how painful and gruesome death on the cross was to begin with. And now as they're hanging there, they're going to break their legs. Now what was that all about? Well, in a typical crucifixion, the victim was nailed or tied to the cross with his arms stretched out along nearly a, a horizontal line. But gravity itself would soon make them slump downward just by, by the way that they were hanging. So there with gravity just straining on the torso downward, arms straining it upward, he, he, could, he could breathe in, you could take a breath in, but you couldn't relax the muscles to actually breathe out. Thus, to exhale, you'd have to raise up. Now, there's been some uh, evidence of uh, things that they have uh, uncovered of skeletal remains and all of victims that had been crucified. In some cases, there was a little shelf right below the feet. So it would allow them, even with a nail in their feet, they could raise up just to get a breath. But you can imagine the pain that that would create with that going on. They recently have just discovered from a skeletal remains that there was also crucifixion that took place where there wasn't the board below their feet. The feet were on each side of the vertical beam nailed into the sides. Kind of the same, it really doesn't matter, does it? It's still going to be very painful, no matter what, just trying to get a breath of air. So in time, just by weakness and pain, they're not able to raise themselves up for another breath, and they died of suffocation. So we see the death on the cross. We know what that's all about. Most of the time, it wasn't the nails, the blood, all that that caused the death. It was just suffocation because they couldn't, they couldn't breathe properly. So in this scene, it's very clear that rather than dragging the death of the victims out, we know that Jesus was already dead. We saw that last week. He had died. They'd come back and break the legs so they're not able to push themselves up to get that, the much-needed breath that they needed. So they died very quickly then of suffocation. 
Verse 32 tells us, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So that didn't happen. Broke the legs of the thief on the left and the thief on the right, but they didn't break the legs of Jesus because they saw that he was already dead. And it was God-ordained that they wouldn't. It was prophesied that his, not a bone would be broken. So to fulfill that prophecy, God had it in his design that Jesus was going to die before that took place. And that's exactly the way that it happened. But just to verify that Jesus was dead, his side was pierced with a spear. We see that in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now this did happen. The scar is there. We even see later where he's going to tell Thomas, put your fingers into my side and see. So God ordained that this would happen as well to fulfill prophecy. And the fact that blood and water came forth indicates that if an autopsy were performed, they would have discovered that Jesus died of a ruptured heart. This is a common thing even today in the medical field. It's known as cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy. I practiced that too this week and I still... <laughs> so, the most common type is called stress cardiomyopathy, also referred to as broken heart syndrome. It's a condition in which intense emotional or physical stress can cause rapid and severe heart muscle weakness. The condition can occur following uh, a variety of emotional stress factors, such as grief, uh, the death of a loved one, fear, extreme anger, and, and even surprise. It can also occur following numerous physical stress factors to the body, such as stroke, seizure, difficulty breathing as a flare of asthma or emphysema, or significant bleeding. So this can cause the heart to burst or to break. And when this happens, this can cause the, uh, the, around the heart a sac is formed. And when they put the spear in, into Jesus' side and they pulled it out, they punctured this sac around the heart filled with fluid as well as his heart, so blood and water came out, indicating, or you might say, that Jesus died of a broken heart. Now, that sounds maybe crazy to you that the Savior of the world died from a broken heart. Well, we talked about what was going on last week, didn't we? There was a time on the cross where all the sins of all time were poured upon him, put upon him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never had to deal with sin. He was sinless. God couldn't be in the presence of sin, but in order for the sin sacrifice to take place, all of the sin of the world of all time had to be poured out upon him. And we talked about how, imagine how that would have been for him. We know that as we have the Holy Spirit and convicts us when we sin, we have that guilt, oh, man, this is really weighing me down. I need to take care of this. I need to take this to the Lord, confess, repent of it. That drags us down with just one sin or two sins. Can you imagine the sin of all the world of all time poured upon you? We look back over history 
And we think, boy, there's been some real sinners over history, hasn't there? There's been people that have done some very, very wicked things. They would say the same thing about us. <laughs> we have, in God's eyes, because God is holy, we have done some very wicked things. We like to think, oh yeah, but my sin is not as bad as someone like Hitler. Well, maybe the consequences of those sin wasn't as bad, but in God's eyes, sin is sin, isn't it? There is no degree there. So if I tell a little white lie, it's, it's as much of a sin to God as, it, as anything anybody's done in the past. So imagine all of those things poured out upon Jesus all at that one time, knowing that he was dying for the world. I would think that would cause a, a broken heart. Uh, we talked about stress. We talked about all these things. Yes, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. So he would be dealing with all of the physical aspects of the crucifixion as well. And then all that sin poured out upon him. Verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. This is John writing this, the disciple that Jesus, whom Jesus loved. We know throughout the Gospel of John as we've gone through that, John never refers to himself in first person. He's, it's always the disciple whom Jesus loved. Even as he's writing, as we saw last week, about uh, Jesus on the cross dying and says to Mary, his mom, uh, this is your son. Says to John, this is your mother. So that John would start taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. <laughs> and... His name isn't mentioned there either. Same thing with this. John is testifying of these things because he is an eyewitness. He is there at the cross. He's seeing all these things take place. So he's writing from not a point of hearsay or rumor. He's writing an eyewitness testimony. John was there. So John affirms this eyewitness testimony. He's saying, this is what I saw. This is what took place. Here's the events. Here's the details that was going on at the crucifixion. We know that the main purpose for John writing his gospel account, we'll look at it uh, in a few weeks, John 20, verse 31, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So why, why did he write his gospel? Why, why did he write this account? So that we may believe. And in believing, it says, we may have life, in His name. Because of what Jesus did, we have new life in Him. Verse 36. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of His bones shall be broken. That's in Psalm 34, verse 20. And then, again, other Scripture says, They shall look on Him whom they pierced. Zechariah 12:10. And these are just two of the 28 prophecies fulfilled in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. I challenge you to take a look at that sometime. 28 prophecies fulfilled just in the last 24 hours that Jesus was alive. Well, verse 38. After this, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So we'll just refer to these guys as Joe and Nick. 
here are these disciples, but secretly because of fear of the Jews or fear of man. Have you ever had a time in your Christian walk when as a disciple you kept it quiet? You just kind of sat on it? Didn't want to draw attention to yourself as a disciple of Jesus? You ever do that? I have. <laughs> I think we all have if we're going to honestly uh, assess our situation. We keep our Christianity, us being a disciple of Jesus Christ, we keep it a secret. When we, when we should have spoken up, when we should have taken a stand, when we should have been a witness. But we have these questions that run through our minds. What will they say? What will they do? Why? The fear of man, right? The fear of being chastised. The fear of being made fun of. We've all been there. We've, we've all been affected by that very thing. And we know that Joe and Nick here, they're affected by it as well. Disciples of Jesus, but secretly. Now, with John, when he writes his gospel, when he mentions secret disciples, it's really not in a very favorable way. We see in John chapter 12, verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's a very convicting verse. That's a, that's a real ouch for us, isn't it, <laughs> as well? Many of the rulers, it says, believed in him. These would have been the religious leaders of the day. Some out of the, uh, the group of the Pharisees, some out of the group of the Sadducees. Uh, but because of these groups, they didn't confess him. Why? Lest they be put out of the synagogue. There will be consequences to them standing up for their faith. I was listening to Grace FM on the way down here this morning, and they were uh, one of the other pastors was telling a story of, of a guy in his fellowship that had come to him and said, for a couple weeks now you've been telling me to stand up strong for my faith and be a witness for Jesus Christ uh, in my community, at home certainly, at my work, my job. And he said, last week I did that and I got fired. They fired me. There's the reality of what, what we're talking about here, right? Standing firm for Jesus Christ, there are consequences of sin. We know that. We've all experienced that. But there's also consequences for standing firm for Jesus Christ. So, that being the case, are we going to trust in God or are we going to trust in man? If we have this fear of man and what might be said or what might happen because of our actions or because of what we say, we've, we fall into this category. And as we've all admitted, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all fallen short in that. So who are these guys, Joe and Nick, and why are they willing now to go out on a limb, if you will, and openly care for the body of Jesus? Not, not only that, but even go to Pilate himself and ask for the body. We, we've looked for the past month, that whole scene and what's taken place. We know that Pilate really didn't care much for the religious leaders of the day, always trying to get back at them in one way or another. And so now we have two of these very leaders go to Pilate and they ask for the body of Jesus. Pretty brave move in, in this time. So we have Joe, Joseph of Arimathea. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, but only in relationship to the burial of Jesus Christ. We know from that and from the other Gospels, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, 
He's a rich man, a disciple we see from Matthew 27. He's a good and just man we see in Luke 23. Good is his inward condition. He's just in his outward condition as, as he relates to other men. We know from Luke 23 also he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Scholar of the Old Testament. He lived in anticipation of the deliverer of the Jewish nation, as which all Jews did at that time. We also know from verse 38 in our text today, he was a secret disciple. It almost sounds James Bond, James Bond-like, doesn't it? Joe, Joe Bond, <laughs> secret disciple. Well, both Joseph and Nicodemus, their actions were taken with with great risk. To obey the teaching and instructions of the council of religious leaders could be cause for what's called the great big word in Christian circles, excommunication. Anybody ever had to deal with excommunication? You're not going to raise your hand even. Steve, you have. We'll talk later, Steve. <laughs> excommunication, big word for saying you're out of here. <laughs> We don't like what you're doing. We don't like what you said. We don't like what you stand for. So you are no longer a member of our church. Well, that's really interesting because when there's only one church, it's the church of Jesus Christ, and it's made up of all those who believe in Jesus Christ. So it's kind of bold for someone to say, well, you might be saved, but you're, you're out of the church. You think about that in and of itself. It's just almost ridiculous, isn't it? You think, well, it's a... It's a way that we can uh, keep control of things. We're just going to get all of the bad seeds out of the church. Well, last time I checked, every church was full of sinners, is it not? What's the old saying? If, if you're looking for a church and you find the perfect church, don't join because you'll ruin it, right? <laughs> so these guys knew that not only their status uh, in the Jewish religious council but they're standing in the community. Uh, most of them probably had some kind of a business on the side. If you're excommunicated from the synagogue, it affects all areas of your life. It affects your income. So as soon as we start talking about income, the fear of man starts coming up, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I'm going to do that. I could lose my job. Yeah, you could. It's a, it's a tough spot. But I believe that if you're, you're standing firm for Jesus Christ, He's got that all figured out, doesn't he? He's got something else in mind, being bold for him. So it would affect their position, their livelihood to take this step. So then we have, that's Joseph. Now we have Nicodemus. Nicodemus is only mentioned in the Gospel of John. Every time he's mentioned, it notes that he came to Jesus at night. You know, for those of us that are old enough. Nick at night, how many of you remember that, that show? And, and it may have been because he was afraid. It may have been more of just from a practical standpoint, because being a part of the Jewish council, maybe during the day he didn't have that much time to do that. We don't know. Do we know that Jesus was always surrounded by crowds of people? We know Nicodemus appears three times in the Gospel of John. He first visits Jesus one night to discuss his teachings. We have that in John chapter 3. The second time Nicodemus is mentioned He's reminding his colleagues, he stands up amongst his colleagues in the Sanhedrin that the law requires that a person be heard before being judged. 
They'd already judged Jesus. They wanted him killed. And Nicodemus stands up very boldly and makes a statement. Hey, the law says that a person should be heard before being judged. And we know through the trials, Jesus was allowed to be heard, but they were all trumped up charges, weren't they? And then finally, Nicodemus appears after the crucifixion. We see here to provide customary embalming spices and assist Joseph in preparing the body of Jesus for burial. At some point, he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. So didn't Joseph. At some point in time, they, they recognized he was the Christ, the Messiah. But nevertheless, they have showed up now. The disciples, with the exception of John, they're nowhere to be found. We saw in our text that they were scattered. John's the only one that we have documented that was there. So we have Joe and Nick stepping up here. They are disciples. They are believers that Jesus is the Son of God. And now we see them do something. Something for us to take note of. We see them serving like disciples. Because we all know. It's one thing to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's another thing altogether to actually serve as a disciple. Practically. The practicality of being a disciple is based upon sacrifice. Our own sacrifice. Christ sacrificed himself for us, so we ought to sacrifice ourselves for others. 1 John 3.16 by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for others. Isn't it interesting how John is the author of both of these books, the Gospel of John and then his letter of 1 John. And we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Now we have 1 John 3.16, and it's kind of like, man, he could have put that right after John 3.16. He didn't, we know that, but we can. <laughs> He laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for others. To do this effectively, it obviously requires what? Sacrifice. It requires sacrifice on our part. A sacrifice of three things. Of time, of talent, and of treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. Now, if you're here for the first time and you're thinking, oh, he's going to go off on the treasure thing. <laughs> There's boxes in the back for you to give to the work of the Lord. You know that if you've been around this church for any length of time, we have never asked for money. Never have. We're not going to today either. That's between you and God. If God puts it upon your heart to give, then give. If he doesn't, then doesn't. If you can't do it with a joyful heart, don't do it. But it's between you and God. So, yes, we're going to talk about time, talent, and treasure, but don't think this is a method to get people to give. That's not what we're about. So, Joe and Nick, they're a model for us in this. So, a sacrifice of time. How did they sacrifice their time? How did they give up their time? Well, number one, they showed up, didn't they? They, they were there. You may have heard it said, God is more interested in our availability than He is our ability. And I think that would be true, without a doubt. Because whatever talent we have, where did it come from? God. So he's not all that impressed with our ability, is he? I gave it to you. No big deal. You can take it away, too. So I'm not impressed with your ability, but the fact that you're willing to be available to use that talent, he is impressed with that. He's uh, overjoyed with that. He's blessed by that. So they showed up. They're available. 
They went to Pilate and asked for the body. That took some time. They took the body down. That took time. So we see this whole scene really before anything really happens that they're giving of their time for the Lord. So a sacrifice of time. Also, a sacrifice of, of talent. Well, how do we know that? There's, there's nothing about any particular talent that jumps out of the text in this. They did what they could, didn't they? Uh, when we were remodeling this, we're still remodeling this building, but when we were <laughs> remodeling the building, there were many people that were available to offer up talents. Some of those talents weren't necessarily for a specific thing, uh, building the, the platform. Uh, for example, the two guys that did that, I just kind of got them lumber and screws and stuff. <laughs> they knew what they were doing, right? They had that talent. We had people that painted. We had people that did all sorts of things. Some of it a stretch for maybe what they normally done, like me doing electrical work. Not only was it a stretch, it was also a shock at one point in time as well. <laughs> I did what I could. So these guys, they did what they could. They, they wrapped the body, we know. They prepared the body for burial. They were sacrificing of their time. They were sacrificing of their talent and doing what they could, being available. And then we have the third one, a sacrifice of treasure. We can see from our text today that they invested of their own funds. Joseph supplied the tomb. And we know from the text it's a new tomb. Not a used tomb. He didn't offer up sloppy seconds, did he? <laughs> like, well, I've got this one tomb. I just, well, I'll just take out whoever's in there. You know, <laughs> make it available. It wasn't like he did that, right? It was a new tomb, never been used, and he offered it uh, willing to lead to the Lord. Nick supplied all the spices. A hundred pounds of spice. That's a lot of spices. So these guys are giving big time for what they have here. I, you know, I don't know what a, what a tomb was going for in those days. Um, this one could have had a for rent sign, really, couldn't it? <laughs> Jesus wasn't going to need it long term. Just kind of a weekend thing. <laughs> but these guys gave of their time, talent, and treasure. <laughs> what does a tomb rent for? I, I don't know what anyone even sells for, so how would I be able to figure out what, what it rents for? <laughs> Moving on. Time, talent, and treasure. Now, we might be willing to offer up one, maybe two of these things, right? But all three? Sacrifice is called sacrifice because it costs something, doesn't it? If it doesn't cost anything, there's no sacrifice in that, right? You think about that. If I was independently wealthy, which I'm not, I'm not even dependently wealthy, but I'm just not wealthy. <laughs> but giving out of your riches really doesn't cost a whole lot, does it? It's when you're making that sacrifice. You know, so it's a balance of these three things, isn't it? If I've got extreme talent in one area, yeah, I can give that to the Lord. That's great. I'm offering it myself. I'm available. But something maybe that I'm not so comfortable with doing. Am I willing to sacrifice my time for that as well? So time, talent, and treasure. A good balance of all three of those, sacrificing uh, ourselves in those. 
That's a very healthy thing. It's a sign of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, I don't, I'm not necessarily implying that you do all three of those at the same time. It's just that as uh, situations present themselves, as you're able to give your time, as you're able to give of your talent, or you're able to give of your treasure, whatever that case is, if God's called you to do it, just do it. Just be obedient in that. Remember the story of David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24. David was tempted by Satan. We know from 1 Chronicles of that same thing. David was tempted by Satan to number Israel, take a census of the people. And it appears as though David's command to take the census was maybe motivated by pride. Look at my kingdom. Look how many people I have in my kingdom. You know, the equivalent might be if I took a census of the people here this morning, just doesn't seem quite as bad, does it? Quite as deep. <laughs> David's was a big kingdom, so counting the people, taking that census. Whatever the case was, it was not God's will. The Lord was displeased with David doing this. Realizing that he had acted foolishly, David then confesses his sin and seeks the Lord. Because of David's sin, though, there are consequences. And the Lord says to David, Choose from one of three things. Either seven years of famine in the land, three months of you, David, fleeing from your enemies, which wouldn't have been appealing to David. He'd been doing that for years, hasn't he? Or three days of plague in the land. Well, David chose the plague. And 70,000 men died. You think, wow, he just counted the people. God didn't want him to, so God says the consequences of your actions are that 70,000 men are going to die. And they do. He's like, why is that? Was the sin that he actually counted the people, or is just the disobedience of him doing that period? The counting of the, of the people was not the sin. Is that, that David just did it. He decided he was going to do it. So pride in that kind of makes sense. I'll speak to the guys this morning we struggle with pride at times, don't we? It's just something that we struggle with. I, I can't speak for the ladies because I'm not one, so I don't know for sure. But I know from a men's standpoint, pride is something that, that we stumble with from time to time. So because of this, 70,000 men died. So David seeks the Lord again, and the Lord directs him to erect an altar on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Now, when Arana saw the king, David, coming, he said to the king, Take whatever you want for the sacrifice before the Lord. Whatever I have, take it. It's yours for the sacrifice before the Lord. David said to Arana, I'll buy all of it from you. And he makes this statement, For I will not sacrifice unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. Great, great verse for us there, for us to know and understand not to sacrifice to the Lord which costs us nothing because in that it's not a sacrifice then is it it's just something oh this happens very easily very naturally because I don't have to sacrifice anything for it sacrifice is sacrifice because it's sacrifice so back to Joe and Nick here they give of their time they give of their talent they give of their treasure as they prepare the body of Jesus for burial verse 40 says then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. 
Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So Joseph, we know, he gave up this new tomb in which no one had yet been laid for Jesus' burial. So Jesus was arrested, he was tried, he was convicted, he died on the cross, and then he's buried in the tomb. It's like I said earlier, we know that Jesus, as we were looking at things that were written on tombstones and all early in the message, you remember that? I know it made a huge impact on you. But what could have been written above that tomb is what we just said a while ago. Thanks, Joe. I only need it for the weekend. I say that jokingly, but it would be true, wouldn't it? It would be very true. We know there was a gentleman by the name of Paul Harvey for years he entertained us with his stories on the radio, didn't he? He gave the background to some story, gave it some color, told us the facts and different things about what was going on. And then as the teaser, Paul Harvey would say what? And now, the rest of the story. Well, we're going to look at the rest of the story on Resurrection Sunday. In two weeks, we're going to talk further about this and we're going to see Jesus rose from the dead. And so all of this time, all of what we've been going through, we know and we understand that Jesus died for our sins. That part was finished, wasn't it? That work was completed, but there was still some things to take place. And we're going to see that on Resurrection Sunday. As we know, as it was prophesied, Jesus would rise from the dead, and then he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. We talked last week about how the priests were serving continually in the temple, weren't they? And in all the furnishings in the temple, there was no chair. There was no place for them to sit down because they were serving continually. But yet we see about Jesus, our high priest, the one-time sacrifice, it was finished, it was complete, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he could. The work was done, wasn't it? So we're going to take a look at that in a couple weeks. But be thinking about these things. I, I, I don't want to make you feel this morning like you've been beat up on. <laughs> Pastors aren't supposed to beat the sheep. They're supposed to feed the sheep, right? And so in these three things, this time, talent, and treasure, don't think of it as something that I have to do. Think of it as this is something I get to do for the Lord. If you go into it with that perspective, it's just joyous. Man, I sacrificed my time. You know, it wasn't any sacrifice at all. I got to do something for the Lord. Amen?